Salo Falava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. There's been a lot of disinformation going around. Pacific delegates at the shipping meeting in London have a bone to pick with. Also, would you drink nuclear wastewater? Some experts believe Japan's plan is safe. And later... There are role models in the community for women, for men, for sports stars. We find out what makes the Vanuatu Beach Volleyball team super successful. Shipping industry stakeholders are meeting at the International Maritime Organization in London and are expected to adopt a greenhouse gas reduction strategy on Friday. The Marshall Islands chief negotiator to the UN Global Regulator for Shipping, Alban Ishora, says Pacific nations will fight to address the needs of climate-vulnerable countries to put the industry on a 1.5-degree pathway. Mr Ishora is part of a small but vocal delegation from the region at the negotiations. So far, the Pacific delegates have sounded the alarm on a possible disinformation campaign peddled by a couple of countries about their proposal to introduce a carbon levy. With the talks entering crunch time, Mr Ishora spoke to Calvin Anthony, who is currently at the IMO's London headquarters. That's what we're going to fight for, to have the right measures being addressed and clearly defined. We have always said from the Pacific that, yes, we need two types of measures. One is a technical measure to assure that the fuel is available to that emissions reduction. And then the second is the economical measure that allows for revenues to be generated to reinvest back into the sector, but also to look at how to address the needs of climate-vulnerable countries in the developing world. So what is the state of play right now at the negotiations? Well, right now we're going to we're going through a process of agreeing to the working paper on the text. So we're going to currently we're going we're looking at the comprehensive impact assessment term of reference, how we're going to take these measures and possibly look at how to um, assess the disproportionate negative impact on states from a levy. So that term of reference is being looked at right now by member states. And then after that, we're going to go into the revised strategy, which should tell us how to get from here to 1.5 by no later than 2015. One of the key issues that people are talking about here is the, the economic measure, and it appears that there's a lot of resistance to that. Why is that? There's been a lot of disinformation going around about the measure, claiming that it will hurt the developing countries, and that it is a, a measure that is being developed by developed countries. Uh, that's not true. The measure that the levy that the Marshall Islands, the Solomon Islands, Island supported by a couple of Pacific Island states puts up its a whole package approach to how you address alignment to 1.5 degrees. So it's uh, it, it's one, you, you have a hard goal, which is what we had already compromised in uh, Paris. And then two, you have both an economic and technical measure that help transition the sector. And three, the economic measure can also, can also assist with equitable transition of the sectors, leaving no one behind. And unfortunately, there's been a couple countries or member states that have gone around and said that this uh, measure is, uh, is, is going to be hurtful. From early studies that have come out, they've looked at all the impacts and they're, they're looking at especially the larger economies, emerging economies, and that uh, there's going to be a very, very minimal impact, disproportionate negative impact on them. Perhaps the small island countries will pay, pay more, but that's why we're trying to create a an economic measure that feeds back into absorbing some of these 
disproportionate negative impact to small island states and uh, developing states and least developed states. Quickly touching on the disinformation that you mentioned, who is creating this? Well, I'm, I'm not allowed to say state's name, but there, there's a couple of states that have come out and say this will be very harmful. Unfortunately, some of the smaller states across other regions have picked it up and said that, it, yes, this is the case without even reviewing our proposal. So that, that's what we're trying to uh, have more consultation with the other member states so that they understand that this is the truth about the proposals that we've put on the table. And just finally, everyone's saying that this is the most significant event for IMO. Is it? IMO has an opportunity to transition now, right away. And this year, by 2030, we need to meet a goal. And by 2040, we need to meet another goal so that by 2050, it's zero emissions. It's already decarbonized. And it starts now. The chief of the UN nuclear agency says Japan's plans to dump more than one million tons of treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean is safe. Lydia Laws has been covering the developments. On March 11, 2011, 20,000 people were killed when a magnitude 9 earthquake struck Japan. Tsunami towered over the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, flooding the facilities, causing reactors to melt down and explosions. Twelve years on from the disaster, over one million tonnes of treated but still contaminated nuclear wastewater is to be diluted and then disposed of in the Pacific. The IAEA Director General Rafael Mariano Grossi is in Japan to deliver his team's final report before Japan starts discharging the water. Our independent and comprehensive assessment confirms the plans to be in line with IAEA safety standards. The 140-page report of the International Atomic Energy Agency said it was not endorsing the plan, which was a decision for Japan to make. While this is the last report before the dumping starts, his team is not finished. Assessing a plan is not enough. My experts will come back to Fukushima repeatedly, and for as long as the process takes to take samples at different locations and confirm the water remains safe. Clean ocean matters to us all. Auckland University physics senior lecturer Dr David Krofchek says from a scientific standpoint he is confident the release can be completed safely. But I think it would be best to build up transparency and trust if the Japanese would also invite their immediate neighbouring countries to observe with their own scientists. Transparency, something that's needed now more than ever. There's been fierce backlash from anti-nuclear activists in and around the Pacific. Young Solawara Pacific and Pacific Collective on Nuclear Issues spokesperson Tale Mangione is not convinced it will be safe, even after seeing the IAEA's latest report. That report that just came out is very alarming and disappointing to us. We've been against this since day one, particularly given that the Pacific is overburdened with, you know, this nuclear history and history of nuclear harms. And, you know, this is just adding another layer to that history. So we are very opposed to it. Mangione is disappointed in New Zealand for being silent on this, given its commitment to a nuclear-free Pacific. She wants Pacific leaders to initiate a lawsuit against Japan.
Anti-Corruption Agency Transparency International in Papua New Guinea are doubtful that giving police new powers will overcome a surge in kidnappings and demands for ransom. The amended Criminal Code Act will give police the power to deal with what the Police Commissioner David Manning is calling domestic terrorism. Mr Manning says the changes establish a clear legal process for the escalated use of lethal force, powers of search and seizure and detention for such criminal activity. Transparency PNG's Chair Peter Aitzi says he doesn't believe the law changes will be effective. I think it's an attempt by government to try and perhaps give some response to the emerging trend of kidnapping and hostage-taking, which we're seeing in the province within our country. As to whether it'll be effective, I'm not so certain. There is this talk of police having lethal force powers, and I would imagine that in PNG, to a certain extent, that's uh, an irrelevancy, since police have had, well, they don't seem to have had too many problems applying the most lethal of powers uh, for a long Mm. time. And that, that's correct. Look, I mean, as has been reported, we've had numerous instances of what people term as excessive use of force by our police force. And in most cases, it, there's seldom really any kind of penalty or discipline measures taken against the perpetrators. Only from time to time do we see something followed through. So I think in terms of changing the act to give them more powers, I think they already have it. But to my earlier response, I doubt whether it'll have any significant improvement in terms of the response to the to this emerging problem we're having now of ransom and hostage taking and ransom seeking. So what would you recommend? What would transparency say should be done? Yeah, look, Don, our focus at Transparency National is always about strengthening the work of these agencies and really making sure that they're effective at the end of the day because they've got all the power vested in the, in the laws that govern them to be able to enforce and hold citizens accountable to that law. But seldom do we see that enforcement being effectively executed. The problem we have up in the Southern Islands is that there's been a proliferation of, of guns and uh, essentially government authority has been relegated to a polit- to political uh, groupings that follow one or two individuals or those with the, with the resources, by that I mean money and guns, in order for them to maintain power. So in this type of environment, you could see the police and those authorities, so-called authorities, would be powerless because it's these individuals that control these large sections of the community that are now well-armed that are the power in these areas. So essentially they, are, they remain well and truly in their own authority and in their own sort of power bases and as a result not accountable to what should be lawful conduct. I heard one of the kidnap victims speaking about her experiences and she talked about the kidnappers being kids essentially, young teenagers with no ability to speak talk person, no English, no sign of very much education. She was saying that they are people who have been deprived and deprived and deprived over many years. No, exactly, Don, and that's the worry for groups like TIPNG. You know, over the last 20 years, we've essentially undermined our government system, undermined them by political process, where we've had our political elite and those that are associated with them take over these subnational level government services. And so as a result, it becomes a political process that then works towards a political outcome. And as a result, we do get our people really being pushed now to the real margins of our development. And so as a result, they're not engaged in the process of society building or even nationhood. And as a result, we see the kind of lawless conduct because they don't see a belonging 
belonging to the state of Papua New Guinea. Their interest is to serve those that are able to put food on the table for them and, and to essentially what they see as being people who care about their welfare, but really they don't because they're just using it for their own individual outcomes. What does it take to ensure sports development programs in the Pacific thrive? Well, according to Vanuatu Volleyball Federation President Debbie Masavakolo, it's having a clear pathway and role models. It's been the recipe to success for the Vanuatu Beach Volleyball team since the sport was first introduced in Port Vila in 2007. Being the number one beach volleyball nation in the Pacific is testimony to that. Elias Otoro spoke with Debbie Masalvakolo and Vanuatu Volleyball Media Officer Joe Scanlon. One of our biggest aims is to qualify for the World Championships in Mexico in October. So then after that, we have a few more tournaments, uh, World Tour, Tour tournaments, and then um, come back for the Pacific Games. So, yes, an action-packed uh, competition calendar for our girls as always. And, I, and, and we should just highlight what Debbie just said, Eliezer, is that we're really proud of the fact that the girls, especially the, the elite level players, participate in our community programs and in our, both our, our gender programs and in our, especially in our um, disability inclusion programs in our para. So they, they, when they're home and they have time out of training, um, they participate with uh, all those programs and that's why they would be doing the para. Uh, coaching course and that they they're quite keen on being part of the, those community programs. How how is local yeah. support for for beach volleyball there in in Vanuatu? Seeing that that uh, the team is you know is going to all these international meets and uh, regional meets and and doing very well, I'd say. Um, how's how's local support? Yeah, local support is amazing. Um, we really like uh, we we are a community team. And everything we do, we, we're part of the community. And that's why the girls go do schools programs, um, but also business houses and in the community, um, the local government, um, authorities, the, they're all always very keen to, to have the girls come and, and meet them and also engage with them. And yeah, so they're, they're role models in the community, um, for, for women, for men, um, uh, for sports stars. So sports people. So one of the, um, highlights this year is that, um, the girls coach the, the juniors teams and from the junior program that we have, uh, we have actually got a team. We'll be going to the Youth Commonwealth Games on the first week of August. And, uh, those two young girls, uh, have 10, where they started playing beach volleyball when they were 10 and 12. And I asked them yesterday, I said, how long have you been playing beach volleyball? And she's, one of them said, six years. I said, what? Six years? She said, yeah, I started when I was 10. So they're off to the Youth Commonwealth Games in Trinidad and Tobago. But it just shows that, uh, you know, we start, we have a pathway and, these young girls are now, who started at 10 and 12, who've been playing already for six years, are now taking on their first steps to international competition. And I think that's the important thing, that uh, there needs to be um, a pathway for your programs and there needs to be some role models. And those role models, you know, need to give back and train those kids as well and, and support them. So without a pathway, your program will um, collapse and it won't be sustainable. You can't just, you know, have a, a couple of girls 
of guys doing really well at the top level when you don't have anything underneath coming up. It won't be sustainable. And I think that's why we started our program back in 2007 and we're still continuing uh, to be the leading Pacific Nation in beach volleyball because we have uh, put in pathways and plans to continue it. Now, not just in uh, with players, but with coaches and officials as well. So, but we're always happy to support our brothers and sisters of other Pacific nations, and our doors are open um, for them to come in and, and learn from us. Ilias, I should also just say that um, in terms of what you are asking the and how we're what our profile is like in the community. I had a wonderful experience in January when I went with a couple of the young coaches up to the northern provinces I was stopped by several people and asked, you know, how was this, how was the team going? When would they be playing? Because they said, we watch Facebook all the time, the beach volleyball Facebook page. We all, every time they compete overseas, we're watching for the scores all the time, which is my responsibility. So I feel a very heavy burden, but they said, we watch them all the time and we're cheering them on. So we know. Even in the farther, like some of the outer islands, they are constantly followed and supported. And they were asking, is there any chance the, the players, the teams can come up and talk to the school kids and things like that? So we know they have a very high profile as role models in the, the really wide community. Like I say, even in the outer islands, they all watch them and they all follow them. That's Pacific Waves for today. In the next program, we hear more from Calvin on the IMO updates. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, it's all fast way forward.